Welcome to this latest in the View from the Valley series at Freshfield Bruckhouse Derringer's Silicon Valley office. Today we're going to talk about data privacy in the U.S. in the future under the Biden administration. And we have two experts here to share their views. I'm proud to introduce you to Christine Lyon, who joined us recently as our global co-head of privacy and cyber issues. Christine spent the last two decades advising some of the top companies in the Silicon Valley on privacy issues and saw the law evolve, not just in the U.S. more generally, but in California. She's joined by our colleague, Brock Dahl, whom we snatched out of the government last year. Brock had been the Deputy General Counsel for Operations at the National Security Agency, where he was involved in many of the data attacks on the U.S. in recent years. So it's great to have you both here. Both of these folks are based in our Silicon Valley office, although Brock is also co-located in the swamp between Maryland and Virginia. It feels to me as a non-data expert as if we're reaching an inflection point in this country with respect to data protection and data privacy issues, and that there are two different waves converging. One is state regulation with comprehensive privacy laws, and at the same time, the federal government under President Biden is encouraging development of more robust privacy regulations at the federal level. Let's start with you, Chris. What are the trends that you're seeing how do you think they compare with what you're seeing for our clients outside the U.S.? I would say we're seeing a much greater push in the U.S. for transparency to consumers about the personal information that's collected about them and how it's used and disclosed, including even by giving consumers now the right to see the actual information that a company maintains on them. And I think those who are familiar with, for instance, the general data protection regulation in the EU would think, well, this is nothing new, but it's actually a huge change here in the US where prior to the California Consumer Privacy Act taking effect just last year, very few companies had any obligation to open their files and show consumers the information held about them. And so this is really a change in philosophy. And we're seeing ripple effects already, as you mentioned, Boris. We have two other states, Virginia and Colorado, that have already passed even more GDPR-style state data protection laws. And over a dozen other states have been actively looking at this as well. And I think it really reflects a change in thinking where we've been thinking more traditionally in the U.S. about privacy in terms of risk of harm to consumers and thinking about you know, creating special laws to address special types of risk, like children's privacy online, having the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or health information with healthcare providers and HIPAA. And really we're seeing, as you mentioned, a divergence here where the states are saying that those sorts of narrow laws are not sufficient, that we need much more broad-based rights that apply across all covered companies. And that's a real shift in thinking here. If you draw a continuum, Historically, the side of the continuum we were on was as long as there is can click through consent in which somewhere in the terms of service, someone who's using a website clicked on something that said, you can use my data. If that's one end, which is 
where we seem to have been for a long time to the maybe the other end of the spectrum, which is you can't get any data from the user without her express permission, sort of an opt-in regime as opposed to a silent consent regime. Where do you think realistically in the current political environment in the U.S., where are we headed on that spectrum? Are we headed toward a regime where a company can't track you or use their information on you without your explicit permission, or will it not go that far? I think it will not go that far. And there's been a lot of debate, actually, about what role consent should play. And it's been interesting to see that in the EU, they've really been stepping back from opt-in consent as a basis for processing and really taking the view that's a last resort if you don't have another established legal basis for using the information, which might be it's necessary to perform a contract with the individual or to comply with law or even based on legitimate interests of the company. Because the concern about relying on opt-in consent is it's very burdensome on consumers. I think we all get very tired of seeing all of these pop-ups with cookies on websites and things asking for your consent when you don't have a meaningful choice. So I think many people are looking at the approach we've had, including in the US, as you mentioned, of sort of having this check the box to continue. If you want to use the service, you agree to our privacy policy and saying that that is not going to work anymore, that it should not be the philosophy that we have because it doesn't provide meaningful choice. And at the same time, companies should be allowed to use personal information without getting consent in all cases. There are all sorts of societal and business benefits that may outweigh the privacy impact on individuals. And a lot of that discussion is focused around AI, for instance, and how technologies can really make huge differences for society as long as we have access to data. So I think in the US, we will end up with more of a model where there's more transparency to consumers. They'll be able to see the information maintained about them. They'll be able to request access and also correction and deletion of their information subject to important exceptions where companies may be able to deny those requests on particular grounds. And that we also will see though more of an opportunity to opt out of certain uses of information like the sale of personal information under the California Consumer Privacy Act or also the collection and use of sensitive personal information, which will be coming up under the new amendments taking effect in January 2023. So I don't think we're going to go the full opt-in consent route, and I don't think that would even be a good approach. But I think we'll end up with a model that is a little more modest than GDPR in scope, but still gives consumers much more visibility and control over their data than they've had before. Very thoughtful. Brock, given that we may now have a regime where different state AGs who hope to become governors or senators may attempt to outdo each other with the severity of their privacy laws. At some point, do you think that the major tech companies are going to go to Congress and say, we can't take this anymore and you need to preempt all these and move privacy restrictions to uniform federal level? Or is that not likely to happen? Yeah, I'd be interested for Chris's thoughts on that question. I think that there's been a lot of talk about a uniform privacy law for quite some time. And the question becomes, what becomes the driving factor for enough members to be sufficiently moved or interested to make it happen? And I think that it would almost require 
a, an aggregation of trade associations to come forward and say, the burden is so great on us that we need to, to make some progress in this space. The current climate for tech, of course, in D.C. does not suggest that there's going to be a lot of receptivity to burdens on that industry for the time being. So while I do think inevitably uh, the American people are reasonable enough that we'll end up with something like that, I don't think it's going to be until we start to see a greater proliferation of state laws beyond just the three that we're currently contemplating. I would agree with that. And I would just add that just to echo the point on preemption is one of the hot button issues when it comes to any discussion of a federal law, because California has already made it very clear that California views the federal law as just being a baseline and the companies should, and states, I should say, should be able to build on top of that and create more restrictive laws, which defeats the whole purpose of trying to have a federal law that creates a standard set of rules across the U.S., and I think also that the issue of a private right of action under the federal privacy law is another really complicated issue. There's a lot of concern about creating a federal privacy law that may just create open field day in going after companies for what seem to be technical violations. So I think those have been some of the challenges that we've seen. I mean, we're in a state right now where we don't even have a federal breach notification law. Right. Even though nearly every state has its own law at this point, we haven't been able to align at a federal level on one rule, which doesn't bode particularly well for aligning on a much more complicated and broad-based privacy law. I know that neither of you is an antitrust lawyer, but do you think that the proliferation of different privacy rules state to state is a barrier to entry to startups that might want to compete with the established tech companies. But if you're a large corporation, you can cope with the regulatory regime, no matter how complicated. But if you're working out of Brock's garage, it's a little tougher to do that if you have to have 33 different privacy regimes. Do you think that the sort of entrepreneurial community might be pushing for, for uniformity too, or are they just not focused on that issue? I think that's a great question you raised, Boris, and there are different layers to that. I would say in general, it seems like the larger companies have been pushing more for federal privacy legislation. And I think the concern that smaller companies have is at least twofold. One is, of course, every new law that comes into effect, including a federal law, creates more administration, more burden, more legal costs and compliance. And so there's a concern that we might overregulate privacy and in that way, create a barrier to entry for companies. I think the second concern is around access to data. And this ties in very much to the point you raised on antitrust, too, where large companies have access to their own walled gardens of data, and they don't need to rely as much on third-party sources of data. But the smaller, newer players don't have access to the same data. And so when you have laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act that allow people to opt out of the sale of their personal information, then that actually can make it harder for the small companies to get the data that they would need to be competitive. And that's a concern that's been raised as well about how privacy laws may actually make it harder for smaller companies to compete. I want you to put on your technology hats now because as the hot tech du jour evolves. Presumably, it's going to implicate what both of you do, cybersecurity and individual privacy. 
And I want to pick your brain on three areas. One, AI slash machine learning. Two, the quote-unquote Internet of Things. I put it in air quotes as a sign of derision. And third, biometric data. So let's jump off with AI, and I'd like to go to Mr. Former NSA first. Brock, from a cybersecurity standpoint, what new issues does the, the rise of AI present in your mind? It's interesting because AI really is the new frontier of cybersecurity. It has done two things. One, it has uh, increased the capabilities that threat actors or those trying to hack into a system have to automate their process. So it's much easier. It's a lower barrier to entry to become a hacker when you can purchase certain tools that will just execute functions that even a year ago you would have had to have known how to code. And the uh, machine learning capabilities can then search through systems, know how to react and, and do things that a human being would have otherwise had to have make decisions on. That raises the costs of reasonable security measures for companies to take. You have to, as it were, engage in an arms race to, in general, purchase capabilities or develop capabilities that can outmaneuver those type of capabilities. So it's creating an interesting phenomenon in the security industry. The second thing that, that the AI dynamic is going to drive, but we're not quite there yet, is the ability to really thoroughly understand what is happening to and with the data. So when you use AI capabilities, you ideally want to be able to open up the can and look at what's happening and explain it. And if you cannot explain it, then you certainly can't understand if something malfeasant has happened to it. So if someone has hacked into it and altered key aspects of the data, resulting in a different output, you may never know if you can't explain what it is supposed to do. So that's a layer of complexity that the law is not even really contemplating now, but will be something that I think in the next half decade becomes an issue that starts to be an interesting topic. Assume that both the good guys and the bad guys are using AI on cybersecurity issues. Don't the bad guys have a big advantage in that they have no ethical constraints? So that when governments that we relatively trust are using AI to protect the cyber system, there are limits to what they can do. But when the intruders are using it, uh, there are no limits. So do you worry that there's an inevitable mismatch in this coming battle? Or do you think that because of the greater resources of the governments, they'll overcome the lack of restraint on the part of the attackers? So I think two points will be critical to the way that arms race um, develops. The first is that one of the prevalent themes in nascent cybersecurity philosophy is zero trust. And it's implementing an architecture where you, you just assume that any user in your system is not a trusted entity. And so what type of controls do you put in place to have curbs and checks around what that user can do? And a properly implemented, fulsome zero trust approach should help curb what would otherwise be unchecked AI capabilities used by a threat actor. So there are opportunities to fight back. The second is, as you point out, when there are legal and moral constraints on the defenders, 
that the attackers don't use. You have to find a way to change the risk calculus. And that becomes a question of the federal government stepping in to impose costs on the threat actors in a way that would be either morally or legally prohibited for a private actor to do. So you think about the United States Cyber Command essentially hacking back against these actors and imposing severe costs so much so that it changes the way they think about the profession they've chosen to pursue. If I heard Brock correctly, Chris, I think he was just advocating sending drones after the 15-year-old in his bedroom <laughs> to take him out. Okay. It's a good thing he's, he's entered the private sector. Cyber, cyber steps, Boris, cyber steps. So, Chris, it, Brock alluded to some of the ethical issues. So one element of AI and machine learning is automated decision-making. You know, when we all grew up as lawyers, we would talk about scienter, the, the Latin term meaning state of mind. And there were notions of what does an actor have to intend or be aware of? And now we're talking about ones and zeros making decisions. What do you see as the privacy and even more important ethical considerations arising out of AI decision-making? I would say there is a lot of focus on that concept of automated decision-making. The idea that you use an AI tool to make decisions that have a significant real-world effect on a person, whether they get hired for a job, whether they're approved for a loan, and that there's already a framework under GDPR in the EU for requirements if you're engaged in automated decision-making. There's a requirement for consent. There's a requirement to be able to provide a plain English explanation of the logic involved in that automated decision-making, going back to Brock's point about being able to explain it. It's not enough to just say, well, we use this technology, it's a black box, we can't really explain how it worked. Because the concern is that, like any sort of tool, it's only as good as the data that goes into it, and that there can be risks of large-scale discrimination or disparate impact with no intent at all on anyone's behalf, simply because the data is skewing a particular direction. And so you might have people who are applying for jobs, and the AI is looking to see characteristics of people who are successful at that company. Well, maybe many of the people who happen to be successful have a certain background, or they're they're male, they're white, they have certain educational backgrounds, and then that tends to have a disparate impact. So there's a lot of focus on being able, to Brock's point, to be able to explain the logic, especially, again, if you're making decisions with real-life impacts on individuals. And we've borrowed that term in the U.S. It's interesting how we've seen the Federal Trade Commission coming out with guidance talking about automated decision-making, which is not a term currently used under federal law, but adopting that and kind of addressing that that is a principle nonetheless. And then also the state laws starting to bring that same concept into play. And I think that in part, privacy and ethics are intertwined here, where there's a recognition that in order to use personal information fairly, you need to be thinking about the ethical implications, particularly of technologies like AI. And there's the draft regulation in the EU on AI, which I think will be highly influential as we're thinking through those issues here in the U.S. as well. Do you think that the legal risk on automated decision-making is primarily on the creators of the software, 
are also on the customers using the software. In other words, if for, for our office in Silicon Valley, if we use an AI tool to screen applications from potential associates, and by the way, we're hiring, uh, if we use that, are there issues for us like the ones you've discussed, or is it more of a problem, a concern for the software developer? Such a great question, Boris. And the answer is both. Certainly the companies that are developing these technologies can expect to be subject, I think, to more regulation going forward. But ultimately, it's the companies using the AI tools to make the decisions that are responsible for those decisions. And so, for instance, if a company is using an AI tool to make employment decisions, and those decisions tend to, for instance, screen out, let's say, older workers, it wouldn't be sufficient for that company to blame the tool to say, well, we're not responsible for making discriminatory decisions because we were relying on this tool and it's a black box and we don't really understand how it works. Ultimately, the company that's using the tool to make the decisions needs to be able to defend those decisions if challenged. And that does involve having a degree of vetting of that product and being able to explain how it works. And that is the real challenge right now because much of the AI is, is black box still. And so companies are, are still trying to figure out how do we navigate this process of being able to explain how it works when in many cases it's machine learning, it's really the AI's training itself. And so it's not a linear process. It's easy to explain. So that's an important practice pointer for any in-house lawyers listening to this not at all limited to tech companies, to any company, any client of ours, you should probably touch base with your HR colleagues and your privacy colleagues to say, have we taken a look at what automated functions we have and whether they comply with these requirements? I want to switch from smart to dumb and go from artificial intelligence to the quote-unquote Internet of Things. In other words, the next Cray refrigerator, super, refri super computing refrigerator. As you can tell, I have some skepticism about whether I want my soap dispenser connected to the internet. But I'd like to begin with the security concerns, Brock. How much do you worry about the risk presented from a cybersecurity standpoint by connected dumb appliances known as the Internet of Things. I think it's one of the greatest threat vectors that companies have right now. The Internet of Things appliances, when you, when you think about the most basic type of appliances, those industrial, what you would call industrial control systems that uh, control the door locking mechanisms or the air conditioner or the elevators or more basic things like specific appliances such as refrigerators or smart coffee machines or vending machines that are hooked up to your network. All of those are historically are not well maintained from a uh, systems upgrade standpoint and are, just have the most basic software uh, put into them so that they can function and perform the function that they're meant to function, that they're meant to perform from a practical level, but not from a security perspective. And those are great opportunities for threat actors to gain access to a network. All they need is a doorway, and those are a lot of doorways. Is anybody in the government either regulating this or trying to get people or manufacturers sensitized to it 
in coming up with an action plan so that a bad state actor can't do an attack through everybody's washing machine? It's a great question. The most recent executive order that addresses a range of cyber infrastructure security measures that was released in May of this year specifically addresses Internet of Things devices and orders the FTC, NIST, and several other agencies to engage in a process for essentially raising the bar of security for IoT devices. The main way that they're doing that is contemplating a labeling program, a a safety labeling program that you would see on many other devices to educate the public about what is this category of assets that we have? Can it be configured? Uh, So are there security vulnerabilities that are introduced in open configurations? Are there access restrictions or can people get access? The, the approach that they're taking is providing information. But of course, information provision requires a lot of intellectual overhead to understand what it means for your infrastructure as a corporate owner and how you want to manage that potential risk landscape. I want to turn, Chris, to the sort of data privacy and protection implications of Internet of Things. How do you see that playing out? What we're seeing are companies that traditionally collected very little data that almost overnight become data companies because you collect an amazing amount of information through these sensors. On the one hand, it's often considered to be more machine data because it's associated with the device, but it's remarkable how much you can elicit about an individual consumer's behaviors over time. You know, the household appliances, when does the household tend to be home? How often do they cook? what things are running low in your refrigerator. It's an amazing amount of data. And so companies that are new and entering this space or expanding really need to be thinking very quickly about their privacy compliance programs because there's a tremendous amount of data and they really need to be thoughtful about what they're collecting and in particular how they're sharing it. Because another aspect of the Internet of Things is that there tends to be this entire ecosystem where different parties would like to share information in order to better serve or better target consumers. And there are all sorts of privacy issues associated with that. And sometimes there can be a tendency not to recognize that some of this data is in fact personal information. Sometimes the company will think, well, we don't know the name. We don't know that that soap dispenser is not Boris's house. We don't know Boris's name. So it can't be personal information. But actually, it may well be because it's probably associated with a unique identifier or other data that either alone or together could be used to identify you. And so I think that's another common tripping point for companies sometimes is that they're not recognizing in the IoT space that most of the data that they're obtaining, if it can be linked to a unique individual, is going to be personal information, even if they don't know that person's name. Personally, I'm less concerned about the connected towel dispensers than I am about the smart toilets, but I'm not going to go there. I will turn to biometric data, which in some ways you were talking about the personal information that can be gleaned through an IoT device. In some ways, the most sensitive personal data to most people is biometric. Very sensitive, but it seems to me that the statutory protections under current privacy laws are not robust. What is your take on that? I would agree. 
that the statutory protections in the U.S. for biometric data are not robust, even though you have clear guidance from the Federal Trade Commission and other regulators that this is sensitive, highly sensitive information from a privacy standpoint. And I think there's a shift in thinking. Sometimes you hear companies saying, for instance, or people saying, well, I can see your photo. How can your face be protected biometric data? You know, what's the harm in us doing a biometric analysis if your photo is on you know, the website, anyone can see it. And the answer is that is, of course, highly sensitive. Once you create that biometric template, then it can be used to identify you in any number of other contexts. And that's where a lot of the concerns have come up, particularly around law enforcement use, but also private sector use of these technologies. And yet we have a regime right now where there are only a few states that have specific biometric privacy laws. And Illinois is the most notable because its biometric privacy law has a private right of action. And so it spawned a lot of litigation. But even here in California, we recognize that biometric data is personal information under the California Consumer Privacy Act, but we don't impose any special heightened obligations for it. And I think we will see that change, but the reality is that the privacy regulators in the U.S. do view this as highly sensitive, and it's an area under incredible scrutiny right now. How about geolocation? I've seen that some Starbucks stores, when you approach them with your phone down the street, will prepare the drink you usually order. And then if you happen to stop in and take it, great. And if not, they just pour it out. Are there any restrictions, any meaningful restrictions right now in the U.S. on that type of geolocation tracking? That's another area that is not as regulated as you would expect, because if you look at the EU for years, precise geolocation data has been recognized as highly sensitive. And here in the U.S., we don't have regulation to that level. Again, we recognize, for instance, under the CCPA in California, that that is personal information, but we don't have heightened protections for it. And yet we also have very clear guidance from the Federal Trade Commission and enforcement actions to show that, yes, this is highly sensitive information. And the FTC has essentially, through its enforcement actions, created pretty clear expectations around the sort of notice and clear consent that companies are expected to get in order to collect that sort of information. But yes, it's not as regulated as you would expect it to be. I think here again, the laws just haven't kept up with the technology. I'm going to combine the last three topics we were going to talk about into one, because they're all different sides of the coin, although it's rare to have a three-sided coin. One is for a company that has a breach, what are the real world implications? How big a deal are the ramifications? Related to that, what is your takeaway advice? You've been called into the boardroom and they say to you, all right, what do we as directors need to know to protect the company, but also finally to protect themselves? What is the proper role for the board in all of this? Brock, let's kick it off with you. Sure, and to try and be succinct in, in capturing those responses. The real-world implications for the breach, of course, are that a company can incur notification obligations for personal information of customers, employees, or other users to whom it may have access uh, for their information if the nature of the breach triggers those jurisdictional requirements. There's also a potential litigation tail, of course, for regulatory action for private class actions 
although that's been recently clipped a little bit by the Supreme Court's transunion decision, perhaps a discussion for another day. And for other types of shareholder derivative actions against the corporation for allegations of a failure to meet the duty of care that one might otherwise assert that they should have been meeting in anticipation of the breach. Now that relates to what directors can be doing in in order to prepare for these types of scenarios. You want to think about disclosure controls. So how are you managing the enterprise and making sure that you get relevant information about cyber issues? Do you have an apparatus that and, and a rule set that implements kind of escalation of issues once they've been raised by lower level employees so that you know that events have occurred, relevant events have occurred. Related to that, I should say, what's the regular cadence for the board to review cyber issues generally? The strategy, the investment decisions, and key landmarks in evolving a company's cybersecurity posture. The final point I would make for directors to be putting themselves in the strongest position possible is preparation, working with the executives in the corporation to prepare for events. Now, people will will say it's good to have an incident playbook, but when something happens, the incident playbooks become quickly uh, useless because all the all the events are so particular. And what I would say is that you have a playbook and you practice not so much to address each scenario before it happens, but to train your people to make decisions and to consider options and alternatives quickly. When I was with DOD, that was the entire point of our training, was not to envision every scenario in advance, but to run people through scenarios such that they are are well-practiced in the decisions that you will have to make and have considered a range of alternatives such that the decision-making process becomes a little bit easier and that you've considered in advance the issues that will be key considerations when you have to make those decisions. So again, disclosure controls, a regular cadence for your updates on cyber issues and aggressive preparation. So before I turn it over to Christine for the last word, on your point, do you think that a lot of our clients are gonna get hit by ransomware attacks? Do you think there's value in doing a simulation with the board of directors in which they role play a ransomware attack or Is that a waste of time because everything will change when one actually occurs? I do think it's valuable. And again, if nothing else, it helps you think through who is playing what role, what types of information will be relevant. Executives or the managers of the event may be surprised by some of the questions the directors ask. It helps them to think about those things in advance. And it helps the directors receive advice on the types of things that they should be asking and and maybe areas where you can improve the process. What you're saying reminds me of all those movies about space flights that run into trouble, where the astronauts and the people in Houston go to their manual and look up what they're supposed to do in the manual. And it seems as if that might be useful for a board to do, given how quickly ransomware attacks occur and play out might be useful simulation for some of them. So just as the astronaut says, we have a procedure for that, might be good for the board to say, we have a procedure for that. Christine, your thoughts finally on the risks, the protective measures, and the liability exposure. Absolutely. And I would add one other consequence that often flows from a security breach is you'll have regulators not only looking at what happened 
in relation to that breach, but also opening a broader inquiry about the company's privacy practices, what types of information it's collecting, how it's using it. So it becomes very quickly a broader inquiry. And one of the most helpful things in that situation is to be able to show documented policies and procedures that are actually followed in practice to show that you have given real thought to privacy, that you have a process for assessing privacy impacts of new products and services, for having the new features vetted for privacy and data security, that you have internal policies and procedures for handling information and governing when that gets shared and under what circumstances. Because I think in general, what we're seeing is regulators are expecting companies to have a more mature approach around privacy, just as they're expected to have a more mature and documented approach around cybersecurity. And it's not enough to be thinking about these issues ad hoc on the fly. They're really expecting this to be more formalized. And it really goes to that concept of privacy by design and security by design as well. It is a pleasure to learn from the two of you, Christine Lyon in our Silicon Valley office, Brock Dahl flying between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., Thank you all for joining us on this podcast.